Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every two weeks, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. All right, everybody, welcome back to the second episode in this series on waterway regeneration. Now, in this series, we'll be looking into the often overlooked role of the water cycle and its effect on the climate crisis. Now, I'll be speaking with experts and innovators about how repairing the hydrological cycle and the health of our waterways can lead to the restoration of all sorts of ecological services and the health of entire ecosystems as a result. Now, in this week's episode, I got to chat with Jerry Udelson the author of 13 full-length professional and trade books on green buildings, integrated design, green homes, water conservation, building performance, and sustainable development. Dubbed the godfather of green by Wired Magazine, Jerry's passion for optimizing the built environment is reflected in his many years of professional experience in the green building and certification fields, serving as an elected lead fellow and as president of the Green Building Initiative. He also served on the National Board of the U.S. Green Building Council and chaired the steering committee for the largest green building show, Green Build, from 2004 through 2009. Now, despite being best known for ecological building design and policy, in this interview we're going to focus on his book, Dry Run, which unpacks some of the best ways to manage scarce water resources and handle upcoming urban water crises. Now, the book explains the most pressing water issues that urban zones face, and it examines the vital linkages between water energy use, urban development, and climate change. Now, Dry Run also demonstrates the best practices for achieving net zero water use in the building environment through things like water conservation strategies for buildings, factories, cities, and homes, rainwater harvesting, gray water use, and water reclamation systems, water efficiency retrofits, on-site sewage treatment, and new water reuse and supply technologies. It covers a lot of ground. Now, in this interview, we specifically address the urgent changes that cities need to make to ensure longer-term water security. Jerry also explains his classifications of the colors of water that help to categorize the different sources and uses of water in cities that require different management systems, and gives a few cases of the municipalities that have started to make improvements on their aquatic infrastructure. Now, if you're interested in learning more about regenerative solutions for the urban water crisis, this is your chance to win your own copy of Dry Run. I've teamed up with New Society Publishers to send a free copy anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, or a digital copy anywhere in the world. And all you have to do to be eligible to win is to write me a post on our Regenerative Skills Facebook group about how you plan to become active in regenerating your local water infrastructure. Now, this can be about anything. I'm just curious about what your motivations are and what inspires you to get involved in this. You can find a link to the group on the show notes for this episode, or you can search for the group name on Facebook directly. And I'll really look forward to sending a copy out to you soon. Now I'll hand things over to Jerry. Hey, Jerry, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. How are you doing? Good, Oliver. I'm really happy to talk about water as one of my first real love in academia. And and here it is uh, quite a few years later and still a hot topic. Indeed. And the hotter by the moment. I mean, 
we're really living through some some pending crisis where it's gotten started in a lot of places and others it's kind of on a tipping point. So why don't we start out by having you explain a little bit of the urgency of the water crisis that we're collectively facing around the world from both an urban and a rural perspective? Yeah, so, you know, the water water crisis is, is not delinked from the climate crisis. It's part and parcel of it. Um, as things get warmer, water gets both scarcer and it, it starts to behave differently. So when you think about the water, you think about growing population, maybe adding another 20 to 30% to the Earth's population before we top out, according to demographers. Um, water becomes, you know, a critical in the, in the U.S., in the Western U.S., which is quite dry. Uh, they had a slogan a hundred years ago that was, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting. Wow. So, so that is going to be a source of contention between countries, between regions, going forward for the rest of the century. Indeed. Now, what are some of the biggest consumption points of water? I know agriculture is the number one, but as far as what we have access to and what we can affect in an urban setting... Where is most of the water being consumed? Well, it's kind of divided up, you know, residential, commercial, industrial uses. A lot of it is very regionally specific. Um, when I lived in Tucson, Arizona, in the dry southwest desert, um, water was treated quite a bit differently than when I lived in Portland, Oregon, on the uh, banks of the Columbia River, the largest river in western North America. So it depends on where you are. And I think that's one of the differences, let's say, between energy, renewable energy, uh, as a solution to coal-fired and gas-fired power plants. It really doesn't matter where you live in terms of energy, but water issues are very specific to regions and even cities. And as we start to live more and more in cities, I fear that we're going to become more divorced from our understanding of water. And that's a, a critical political issue going forward. Now, I've seen this play out in a number of different places. I've been to both of the cities that you mentioned, Tucson and Portland, where I lived for a while as well. And I've also heard of a number of crises from around the world, such as in Cape Town a couple of years ago, where they nearly ran out completely for that entire population there. And as you mentioned, it's it's being manifested in different ways in different regions, depending on how brittle their ecology is and how they're managing their water resources. Give me an idea of how it's playing out in some of these places. Yeah, but there are certain things that are in common. For example, one of the things that's happening with global climate change is that the amount of snowpack that we're getting in all of the places that depend on snowmelt for summer water flows and rivers, uh, that's going down. All of the glaciers in the world are melting. And as a result, we're gonna have increasingly stressed summer water availability throughout the world or everywhere that's dependent on snowmelt. We're also seeing faster runoff because the storms are getting bigger. So you may see dams overtopping or failing, uh, which happened in Northern California, just about within a few percent of failing um, a winter or two ago. So there's all kinds of things going on um, that, and then in terms of agriculture, soil moisture is gonna be going down because of hotter temperatures. So all of a sudden, the things that you used to depend on with dry land agriculture, it's going to be more and more difficult just to grow enough food for people in a large number of regions of the world. So that is more problematic because if you don't have food and you can still walk, you're going to migrate. And that is a crisis that's tied in with water availability. And you can see that happening right now in the Middle East. Certainly. And it really echoes something that I've been learning from all kinds of agricultural practitioners around the world. It's not so much that overall uh, waterfall or, I guess, rainfall is going down in their region, 
It's more that it's it's becoming increasingly erratic. With the increase in temperatures, it's uh, it's evaporating much faster. And like you said, it's coming all at once in certain periods uh, with heavy rainfalls, less consistent snowfalls in the winter. And though they might be getting the same amount of water, it's very hard to deal with it when it comes all at once. And then there's long dry spells to try and weather through in between. Do you start to get into solutions for this uh, through some of your strategies or should we focus more on the urban landscape today? Well, you know, I, I think what it tells you is that you need to re rethink your whole ideas around water storage and water availability. But as we learned in the energy field, starting in the 1970s, the first thing you can do is to cut consumption or wasted consumption. And in my book, Dry Run, which you were very nice to, to uh, cite as a source, um, it's actually 10 years old now, but still quite, uh, uh, quite accurate. Um, what we find is that water conservation is actually the cheapest form of energy conservation because we use so much electricity to move and treat water and wastewater. In California, 20% of our uh, electricity use goes to just water movement and treatment. So all of a sudden, if we say, well, let's cut water consumption, we're also talking, we're also cutting our energy demand um, quite uh, dramatically and quite cost effectively. So the first thing I would say is if you look at water consumption around the world, what you find is that a tremendous amount of water is wasted in old piping systems in cities. And a lot of these things in the um, developing countries go back to colonial days. Remember, colonial days only ended 60 years ago, roughly. Um, and so the piping systems that might have been put in by the British or the French or the other colonial masters may not have been upgraded or improved uh, throughout by the, the new nations. So we're finding in countries, uh, let's say Indonesia or Thailand or countries like that, something like 30 to 40% of the water that leaves the water treatment plant never gets to a customer. It's just wasted into the ground or through leaks otherwise. If you go to Germany, the more developed countries with a lot of um, systems in place for infrastructure or uh, maintenance, it's, down, it's like 7%. And I remember during the Australian water crisis of roughly 10 years ago, uh, when Sydney was, as you mentioned, Cape Town, Sydney was close to running out of water, that a report I read found that 16% of the water delivered to office buildings was wasted to leaks. In other words, not in the pipes in the ground, but just in the leaks in the system in the old buildings. So the first thing I would do, you say, well, if you want to stop a dam failure, first you've got to plug the leaks in the dam, right? And so the first thing is conservation is don't waste it. And the second is efficient fixtures, which we basically have moved to in the US and, and many other countries where you're, you're down to the three liters per flush for toilets and, and so forth. Um, efficient use of water. And then you say, well, how am I gonna get efficient use? And then in my book, I make quite a strong case for pricing as a mechanism. So we could talk some more about that. Um, there is a case to be made for basically giving water certain small amounts of water for free to every household uh, as a basic human right. But once you get above basic levels for bathing and cooking, a lot of stuff gets wasted, as we know, um, and, and you have to start pricing it accordingly. And pricing it does change behavior. Yeah, that's a very logical strategy. And it's, it's interesting to me how that hasn't happened yet, especially for how much it's costing municipalities, like you said, in energy and other infrastructure costs. But before we get into that, can you explain the colors of water, as you describe in your book, Dry Run, from blue, gray, brown, black, green, and even Zen and New, which I was not familiar with until I read it? 
Well, you know, I, I decided as a writer, I, by this time I had already written several books uh, on green buildings and related topics. And I, I, I wanted to uh, do, you know, do something that people would remember. And so I said, well, I got this idea for the colors of water. And so um, you start out with blue water, which is, which is the fresh water that we all uh, like and, and that we get out of our tap and out of our rivers. Um, and then we go to sort of uh, from blue water to gray water. And when I lived in Tucson, I actually put in a gray water system and um, recycled uh, my washing machines, the only part of the plumbing I could get to. Uh, my washing machine water, I recycled that for, with, through a filter um, to, to water uh, some very high water consumption trees that happened to be in my yard. And I was able to do it with just a gravity flow system. Um, and, and, and then you sort of go to, uh, that's gray water, which means it's been through some process. And then I, I, I about brown water, which recycled rainwater. And of course, this is the classic way in wetter climates where people would get their water supply. They would put in a cistern or some other way to catch water when it rained coming off the roof and then filter it or at least throw in some bleach, uh, chlorine for disinfectant. And in, uh, in Australia, New South Wales, there's quite a big program of uh, reusing rainwater and designing roofs and so forth so that you can capture a lot of it. It's not hard. The question is always, how do you keep the mosquitoes? You do that with screening and how do you keep it clean? And you do that with disinfectant. So, and then you're still gonna use energy to pump it back into your house, but there may be uses for rainwater, uh, including irrigation. So that was kind of brown water. And then of course, black water, is uh, sewage and you know sewage is 98% water so lots of people say well why why should we just take pure water put it in our toilets flush once and it's gone and now it's contaminated and we have to basically treat it and then throw it away and so a lot of people are now saying well we do better and so in one of my books I profiled a very large office building, I think 30 stories in Sydney, um, one Bly Street it's called, where they have uh, black water treatment in the uh, basement actually, literally in the bowels of the building. And they use it to do cooling water makeup because in a big office building, you're basically running cooling year round because of all the internal heat sources. And so, you know, just again, cooling makeup water is, just there to be evaporated through a cooling system. So why not treat black water, which they did in the basement, uh, make it clean enough to use so it doesn't clog the filters. And so that, that was kind of black water and it does work. And then, you know, green water, of course, is rainwater for irrigation. And a, a lot of cities now, interestingly enough, are rethinking their whole uh, stormwater infrastructure Structure. So the original idea with civil engineers, and I was originally trained as a civil engineer, is get it get it out of here as fast as possible. And so you design all of these systems for floodwater management that would take the floodwaters and dump them in a nearby river as quickly as possible. Well, people are thinking now, so that's kind of dumb because if we're going to be in a water shortage time and we do use a lot of water from groundwater, why don't we uh, intercept the floodwaters through green infrastructure, like parks and roadway medians and so forth, and then slow it down enough so it will then infiltrate into and become groundwater, or at least slow it down so it'll infiltrate and come out more slowly because in cities, the big problem is all the paved surfaces mean much faster runoff and therefore bigger floods downstream, et cetera. And um, th then I kind of got in the idea of Zen water, um, which, which was basically the idea was, can we design 
buildings and facilities that totally subsist on rainwater. In other words, they treat their wastewater, they use it for some purpose. And the answer is, you can do that. I personally don't think it's a great idea because, you know, I'm still enough of a civil engineer to say, well, what about who's responsible for the health? You know, if I'm going to recycle water in a building for drinking purposes, who is going to be responsible for the health outcomes? What I would maintain is that hardly any building owner wants to be responsible. They'd rather point to the municipality if there's a problem with the water supply. And, and then I got the idea, well, what about new water, as you mentioned? And, and new water, of course, can come from a variety of sources. But fundamentally, we're talking about desalination. And um, if you go to the Middle East, the uh, Persian Gulf countries, almost totally subsist on desalination because they don't have any real rainfall to work with, maybe two or three inches a year or you know, under 100 millimeters of rainfall, and you can't live on that, So, and most of it evaporates quickly. So you have to get water from the sea, and that means putting in energy, and then you start to think about, well, can I combine solar power and desalination to deal with the energy demands uh, for desalting seawater because, you know, if you're doing that, you're going against nature. You know, nature wants to make everything the same concentration. And what you're trying to do with desalination is you're trying to get pure water on one side and saltier water on the other, and that takes a lot of energy. So long story short, I came up with the idea of these different colors of water as a way to think about it because otherwise you just say water and it all sounds like it's all the same thing. The point I was trying to make in the book was it's not really. Yeah, and it's an effective way at separating the different uses and the different sources of these forms of water, as well as how they could be used better in our infrastructure. Uh, could you, from here now, outline some of the solutions that you found, especially for the urban water crisis? I know we've gone over some of the ways that we can reroute different forms of water into different uses, but when it comes to urban living, how can we apply the the four R's that you mentioned in your videos and in your book as well? Well, the you know the, there's plenty of books on water and plenty of good books on water. And what I tried to do with this book was to say, well, we're going to keep building new stuff, and if we keep building new stuff and growing population, which we are doing, um, we're going to stress our water system. So. I specifically wanted to address new construction and renovations, et cetera, because most buildings and facilities and industries are going to be renovated uh, many times over the next hundred years. And so there are opportunities both with new buildings in places like China and India, which are building, building like crazy, and Africa, which is, you know, proposed to go from about a billion people to three billion people by the end of the century. Um, a lot of this infrastructure or water demanding infrastructure uh, has yet to be built. So I wanted to address particularly new buildings, but in doing that, I also felt like, well, you can't just throw good ideas into a bad system. So how can we change the system? And one of the things that I found out and actually found out quite a few years ago, um, was that the price of water matters. And it used to be that the more you used, the less we charge you per unit of water. And that was specifically designed for large users. The idea being, I don't have to increase my infrastructure cost very much to double or triple the amount of water I'm delivering. But what we discovered is that's a really bad idea if you start to be in a water short environment. And what you should be doing instead is charging more per unit use. And so I mentioned earlier, there has to be kind of a, a lifeline amount of water that everybody gets for a very low price. But beyond that, you need to go up very steeply. And in fact, in water short places like Las Vegas, um, they charge eight times as much per unit at the top end of their scale. And they have eight or nine different levels of water use for a home or a business. They charge eight, eight times as much per unit. So the incentive is really to conserve 
Um, and then they, they turn around and the second part beyond just pricing is incentives. And they turn around and they say, well, this is the desert. We only get three inches of rain a year in Las Vegas, 75 millimeters. And we'll pay you to take out your water using lawn because, you know, it's funny, but we in America imported the English ideal of a green lawn by every home. And in England, it's easy. In Portland, Oregon, it was easy to have a green lawn because it rains all the time. But in the drier parts of the U.S., which is really the western half of the U.S., it doesn't. And it certainly doesn't rain in the summer, hardly at all. And so a green lawn is really a bad idea, particularly in desert cities like Phoenix and Southwest and, and Las Vegas. So um, the second thing is incentives to put in infrastructure, whether it's paying for uh, low-flush toilets, because we have a lot of older buildings that still have, um, I, I'm going to botch the conversion, but let's just say that have 12 to 15 liters uh, per flush of water. And if you think about it, that's just totally unnecessary. But if we want you to, to use less water, we've got to help you do that. And every water utility in the U.S. that has ever had a toilet uh a free toilet program where they'll essentially give you a toilet, you have to pay the plumber, has sold out in, in days, if not weeks. And so uh, incentives are a third, a second part. A third part is just regulation. You just say, well, certain things you just can't do anymore. And so in Tucson, where I mentioned I lived for 10 years, um, you can't have an apartment building that has a lawn. Now that's not a lot of fun for kids, but there are workarounds, obviously. But you can't build an apartment building with a green lawn. And culturally, nobody puts a green lawn in their front yard anyway, anymore, and most of the homeowners associations forbid it. So you have a pricing, you have incentives, you have regulation, and finally you have technology changes. You you start to push people to think about uh, how they're going to use water differently. If you have a, a warehouse and the, the world is dotted with warehouses because that's where all the container ships uh, go directly and indirectly, um, why shouldn't you be capturing rain off your roof and, and using that for your water needs? If you have a factory, if I charge you right, uh, meaning a lot more than you you're paying today, you're going to figure out ways on your own to adopt new technology. And then when it comes to municipalities, um, we have a so-called AMI, which I think is advanced metering infrastructure. Um, we have ways now with drones and with drive-by readers and with our uh, sort of computer systems that we have with our software, we can monitor leaks everywhere. And we can find them faster than they can be reported. And we can fix them, whether it's in a building. When you have a leak, it's very easy. If you're, if you're monitoring the water meter to see all of a sudden it's going crazy and you need to get a, an SMS message, a text message out to somebody who's on call to fix those things. Um, so you start to look at those four things, technology, incentives, regulation, and uh, pricing as the, as the core structure for a water conservation program. And when people have done these things, it has worked. And so everything I talk about in the book, even though it's 10 years old now, is something that has been tried and proven in a variety of different places. And so we know this can work. It's just a matter of redoing our thinking. And simple things like, in Tucson, they would uh, cut the curbs. So, you know, water is running down the side of the street where you have sidewalks. You, all you do is you cut the curb on the, on the lower side of the street and allow the water to run into uh, a median or into uh, a natural infrastructure, natural systems. So, um, or you build those systems 
so that they work that way. And all of a sudden, a lot of water that winds up effectively in, in a place like Tucson in the desert getting wasted to evaporation now gets recycled into the groundwater. So there's, there's plenty to do. It's just that we've treated these systems as out of sight, out of mind, out of political favor. There are not too many political favors you can do when you fix your water system, but the impacts are enormous. Mm. Yeah, I'm well aware of the work that Brad Lancaster and his team have done down in Tucson. It's been a major inspiration for me and for many other people, especially who've worked in, in dryland context. And I really like also the example that you gave of the the different pay structures that there are in Las Vegas. Now, have you found other examples of cities and municipalities that are managing their water sources in a regenerative way? Or is it still kind of a matter of, I guess, reducing the consumption and trying to reduce the the waste that is inherent in the systems? Have any of them actually gone to the point that you would consider it to be regenerative? Well, the, answer, the short answer is probably no. The longer answer is this awareness over the last decade, because of the focus on climate change and the climate crisis, has forced engineers to rethink their whole profession. And when I started in civil engineering, you know, it was they were still building big dams, and obviously in, the, in parts of the world, they're still building big dams. But we basically stopped doing that in the U.S. by 1970, and we've, we've, we've got the dams that we're going to have because we're realizing that the ecological impacts and, and other impacts are just too, too severe. But if you look at a place like uh, Ethiopia now, which is just finishing a big dam, the downstream countries, uh, Sudan and Egypt, are all of a sudden really worried about losing their water flow. It doesn't mean that they've done a lot to reduce consumption. It's just that they've relied on the Nile flows since antiquity. Um, and, and all of a sudden, the upstream country is now going to start cutting it off. So what I would say is engineers, at least in the U.S. particularly, um, over the last decade have suddenly figured out they need to be in a different business, um, the same way energy engineers have figured out they need to be in a different business where you combine conservation and all of these uh, incentives and pricing and regulation. You combine it all into a holistic system. As new supply is not a key part of it. And of course, you get into, you get into interesting problems. I'll just give you an example. The sewage uh, treatment system in the U.S. and in most countries relies on gravity flow. In other words, you start way upstream and you let the stuff flow downstream and you design your piping system such that it flows fast enough to keep all the solids moving, right? And that system, now I come in with water conservation and I start reducing the water use upstream. In, in upstream means, you know, the more remote uh, suburbs, suburban communities and the more remote parts of cities. I start reducing the water use. All of a sudden, there's not enough flow to move the stuff. And so what do they do uh, in Tucson and other places where they've done a lot of conservation? They have to come in in August open up the fire hydrants, stick the hose down in the sewer, and flush them, thereby consuming all of the water they have saved for the rest of the year. So when they say you have to look at this holistically, you really do. You have to treat it as a system. And that's new for engineers because engineers love to build things. And engineering consultants love to build things because that's where you make your money as an a, a engineering consultant. And that's where construction firms make their money. But I guess the point I want to make, and certainly for this call, is before you build, analyze your whole system. Look at the opportunities for intervention. 
look at the opportunities for soft water solutions, if you will. In the energy field, we have a thing called soft energy paths, which is basically conservation. But look for opportunities to reduce demand before you start trying to construct more supply. And as I mentioned earlier, in a lot of developing countries, and I don't know what the right terminology is these days, but you're losing so much water to leaks. And by the way, it takes a decade or more to build a dam. By the time you clear out all the people living where the dam water is going to be, um, inside of that decade, you could redo your whole piping system, employ a lot more people, and save the same or more water than you're planning to get from the dam. It's just that politicians and engineers and construction companies like to build big dams. But right now, you do that in places like Southeast Asia. You build dams upstream on the Mekong River, and Vietnam is going to be in a world of hurt downstream. All of a sudden, that water is not going to flow. Their um, ecosystems that people rely on for fishing, livelihood, are all going to change. And so you're, you're starting to invite big disasters. When Egypt built the Aswan Dam in the 1960s, when you build big dams in the tropics, you also get diseases um, that are very difficult to deal with. And theirs was one called schistosomiasis, which is a snail, a freshwater snail that causes a very difficult disease. And so all of the people who then lived alongside this new reservoir are getting sick. And so again, and in China, when they built the Three Gorges Dam, which I think is the largest in the world now, they had to displace 4 million people. So you start to look at the social and economic impacts of large dams and you realize this is not a good solution until you've tried everything else. And I think that's the key message is when you look at it holistically, a dam usually comes in as one of the last things you want to do as, as opposed to one of the first things. And I know all of these circumstances are very context specific, but can you give me any examples or perhaps even just throw out some ideas about what a regenerative water system for a municipality or for an urban area might look like, or perhaps some elements that would fit into it? Well, it's certainly uh, starting to treat the system holistically. For example, in Los Angeles, <clears throat> the second largest city in the U.S., um, for historical reasons, Los Angeles is basically in a desert. It gets an average of uh, uh, 16 inches or um, uh, about four, th between 350, 400 a year of rain. And it mostly comes within a five-month period. So for seven months a year, it's pretty dry. So for historical reasons, Los Angeles had a water supply agency, it had a sewage treatment agency, and it had a flood control agency. And they all operated on their own. Flood control agency, as you might guess, their idea was to get the water from the mountains to the ocean as fast as possible. The sewage treatment agency was to take whatever you gave them through the sewage pipes and treat it a little and pump it out into the ocean. And the um, water treatment agency, their solution was to import water first from 200 miles away from the Colorado River and then from 400 miles away from Northern California and to, and to do it through all kinds of political means to supply the, quote, needs of Los Angeles. But if you think about it, the goal with flood control ought to be, and, and to some degree has become, Let's put it back in the groundwater. The, the goal of the water supply agency was, where can I get water locally uh, so I don't have to import it? Because importing it means also um, piping it over uh, 4,000-foot mountains, 1,300 meters roughly. Uh, and that, a lot of pumping up and pumping down. Um, 
They also discovered that because they were overdrawing the groundwater, that the ocean was intruding on their groundwater supply all along. So then they cut a deal with the sewage agency and they said, well, why don't you take some of your treated sewage and instead of dumping it out to sea, pump it back into the ground along the coast and form a barrier to the ocean water that's otherwise coming in as we pump out groundwater in the interior. So all of a sudden we say, well, I'm going to put more in the groundwater for my floods. I'm going to take some of my sewage and use it for uh, keeping the ocean at bay. Now you start to think about a holistic solution. Then they say, well, I have all this sewage sludge, the solids, the stuff that really stinks if you ever go to a sewage treatment plant. Um, and I'm going to use that as agricultural fertilizer. And so they start trucking that to the farms on the interior after doing the appropriate cleanup measures. And so you start to think holistically about the whole system, starting with the rain and winding up with the sewage treatment and flood control. And you start to think, well, I need to have all of these things in the equation. I can't just optimize one. And in fact, Amory Levins, who's a well-known energy guru, um, soft energy guru, says what you do is you optimize each subsystem and you pessimize the entire system. And so I think that's a way to think about it, is everyone's trying to do their own thing because we all have to put some blinders on to get our work done. But when it comes to water, we need to take the blinders off and start to look differently about where can I get water? Where can I cut my use of water? How much can be done inside of individual factories and buildings and so forth? And and then it starts to form a solution matrix that's part of a larger ecosystem that says climate change is the big driver and I'm going to have to respond to a hotter, drier environment, which by the way also need, means more air conditioning, which means more water use for evaporation, right? Because ultimately every air conditioning system evaporates water. and how am I going to do this? And instead of putting fresh water on the roofs of all of my office buildings, um, can I put treated sewage? And then you start to think of dual piping systems, which we see all over the U.S. now, with so-called purple pipe systems, which is reclaimed wastewater that's used for landscape irrigation, a perfectly valid use. Um, and and so, so it goes. So there are these changes happening but I don't know of anybody that's really looked holistically in full measure at these systems because we haven't gotten stressed enough yet. And the problem with not looking at it before you get stressed is that water infrastructure is often a multi-decade proposition. So if I'm gonna, if I'm in 2020 today, and I see that by 2030, I'm gonna have Pick a number, 10% less water. I'm going to have different rainfall patterns. Uh, I'm going to have hotter and drier environment to work with. It's too late to do anything dramatic. 2040 is more of a reasonable planning horizon for water. And 2050 is more likely horizon. So I have to start thinking about interim measures. How am I going to get to 2030 with pick your number, 10%, 20%, 30% less water demand. So I buy myself some time for population growth. Because remember, all of these water-stressed people are migrating. And in Europe, you know, Germany had to, had to they chose to take in a million uh, Syrian and other Middle Eastern refugees. Well, they were refugees from war, but a large part of the problem was there was no water. And this is gonna happen throughout Europe, through, throughout the US with a hopeful change in administration this fall, their presidential election. We're gonna to have to take in more immigrants. Um, and as our populations age, we're gonna find that the immigrants are necessary 
to do a lot of the work that older people just can't do and to pay taxes to support older people. So I think, you know, the countries that are nicely, I'll call fat, dumb, and happy today, coronavirus accepted, um, are going to find that all of a sudden they're going to need to take in and culturally work with um, Middle Eastern and Saharan and Sub-Saharan refugees um, because they're going to come. If you can't make a living <clears throat> or even eat, you're going to walk away, whatever it takes. And there's no way around that. One more thing I'd like to ask you is, uh, how can somebody get involved with affecting change at the community or the government level? Because what we've mentioned here and looking at water systems holistically is much larger than someone reducing water consumption in their household can really start to affect. How can people start to make real change at the levels that are needed to address the problem that is this large? Well, of course, obviously the first thing is do what you can at home <clears throat> to put in water conserving fixtures like low flow toilets and all that. But those are, those are pretty common and they're, they're not expensive. Um, what, what you really want to do is think about um, how can I highlight the issue? I mean, there are people along the California coast who will fight you to the end over desalination. They say it causes too much that the, the effluent from the desal plants is, is obviously saltier and disrupts marine ecosystems, etc. I don't want to get into that. I'm just saying that in, in the United States, there's only two large working desal plants in the whole country, one near Tampa, Florida, one there where I live in San Diego County, and that's it. So you have to, that's a given. So you say, well, what can I do? Well, it's the same way that we've been able to elevate climate, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> climate change and the climate crisis to a level of community concern where <clears throat> right now, <clears throat> based on what I read, <clears throat> Communities all over the world are declaring climate emergencies, <clears throat> climate crisis, and then demanding that their governments make plans. Well, water is part of it. And so when you start talking in your larger groups about climate change, and you want to be a water activist, you have to link water to the broader issue. And I think politically, that's always what you want to do if they say ride the horse the direction he wants to go because it works better and it's easier on the horse. So, so when the, the politics is moving on climate, that's the time to hook in the water issue. And so to me, that would be the first advice. The second is look at decisions that are being made, that are being talked about with respect to water. Um, and you can do an awful lot to, uh, for example, design a better water infiltration system by linking it to parks, linear parks. So all of a sudden, if I start to build more green infrastructure, I'm also building a healthier environment for people. I'm also building a better recreation environment. So all of a sudden, when your government wants to uh, repave a street, that's the time to ask, well, shouldn't we be thinking about maybe putting in a grassy median in the middle to recharge the water that would otherwise drain into our flood control system? So you have to educate yourself first, but um, in my book, I point out lots of things you can do. Um, and in Portland, Oregon, for example, um, some years ago, there was a very active guy in the city government who teamed up with a very smart young civil engineer. And they come up, came up with the idea that at every street corner, you could have water infiltration. And even though Portland is blessed with water supply from a nearby glacier, it, it has problems in the summer and they have to resort to wells. And so 
they teamed up with a program which they carried out around the city of effectively putting in infiltration systems just about at every street corner. And so all of a sudden you start to think, well, yeah, it's sort of like 30 years ago when we had, we suddenly realized that people in wheelchairs couldn't navigate cities and we started putting in ramps on, you know, at every street corner, right? And all of a sudden, if you had a wheelchair, you can cross the street and easily get up back onto the sidewalk. And so these are like social engineering changes that you can make. You just need to have a few passionate people, some with real knowledge, and a city government that's willing to listen. And maybe in Barcelona, because of the government, you could do this. Um, and then you start to have to really look for your opportunities. And so to me, it's politics is always about having an opportunity. And so in a way, it's kind of macabre. But if you look at what just happened in Beirut, in Lebanon, this is the opportunity the citizens have to change the entire governing structure. And because of the outrage over the incompetence of leaving huge amount of explosives un unwatched for years. Um, so I think, you, you know, you, you got to pick and choose your spots and maybe the aftermath of the COVID crisis will lead to many similar um, interventions um, in the public health area. You hope so. And so I think that... Um, you know, you know, that's if I'm a water activist and there are a few of them around, I got to look for those opportunities and then I have to be ready to take advantage of them. Yeah, that's good advice. And certainly coming from someone with such a long history of working in green and ecological, um, I guess, platforms and, and in industries, it's really good to hear that you still have some hope for this kind of stuff because I've been working in this for a while and my hope kind of wanes in and out depending on what it is that I've focused on recently. And um, you've done a good job about bringing all of this experience and ideas into your most recent book, The Godfather of Green, an eco-spiritual memoir, which came out back in April of this year. Can you tell us a little bit about what you focused on and and featured in this book from your your large body of knowledge and experience over the years? Well, the, the essence of it is it's called an eco-spiritual memoir, eco-spiritual odyssey, is, is what I have done professionally and personally. And I think the, the key lesson, if you will, is if you want to make real change and you want to do it effectively over the long haul, you have to work on yourself as much as on other people. And I use a practice of daily meditation as a way to stay centered and focused and keep my energy level up, so to speak. Um, and so I, I talk about those lessons learned in The Godfather of Green. And I, I titled it because uh, Wired Magazine, one of our main technology magazines in the U.S., gave me that moniker about a decade ago. And I thought, well... I didn't ask for it, but since they gave it, it must be true. Um, <laughs> and so, so I, I titled the book that way. But it's a memoir, and so it's very personal. And yet I talk about how I've always wanted to be an environmentalist, an environmental activist, and to use my professional background to move things forward. Um, and how my spiritual practice or meditation practice has supported me in doing that. So I think a lot of people have have drawn some personal lessons from that, but I think the essence of it is if you really look at the history of the last hundred years in a broad context, you look at what Gandhi did in India and Martin Luther King Jr. in the U.S. and Nelson Mandela in South Africa, they all affected major, major changes through nonviolent means, but they all worked on themselves. And I think that's one of the key lessons. It wasn't just nonviolence as a social activist philosophy. It was also a personal philosophy. 
And I think what the way I've characterized it to myself is you can have opponents, which you will, but don't have enemies. Don't have people you will never talk to again, never want to see on the street, cross the street to avoid meeting them. Don't have enemies. You can have opponents, but you have to treat them as equally human as yourself. And if you do that, you give them an opportunity to change their mind. You give them an opportunity to find ways to work with you. And so all of a sudden, even though it might take a while, longer, if you will, um, you wind up with better solutions. And so in South Africa, because Mandela was really a driving force in making sure that the white minority wasn't going to be persecuted the way they were in other countries in Southern Africa, they were able to get their cooperation, etc. But they demanded the truth. And I think that was equally part of it. They had these truth and reconciliation commissions. And you had to go before your community, black or white, whoever you were, and you had to confess to the things you had done that hurt other people, and you had to ask for their forgiveness. And through that process, which took several years, people gradually came forward, and now you see, 25 years later, a country that, even though it has lots of problems, functions in a way that Zimbabwe doesn't. And Zimbabwe was one of the countries where obviously the white minority was effectively driven out. And so, you know, I think these are lessons that we can take and we say, oh, well, I want to be a water activist, um, but how do I approach it personally? And because it's easy to get mad at people. That's easy because you know, you know, that's an easy emotion to have is anger because people do um, sometimes some very bad things. And we see this in the climate crisis where the fossil fuel companies have been effectively lobbying for the last 30 years against real measures to head off the climate crisis for their own personal benefit. And all of a sudden, they're being called to account. But we all benefited from cheap gas. I mean, gasoline today is cheaper than it was when I was a teenager with my first car. So, you know, that's something we have to take into account is we've also been in some way, shape or form complicit in that system. So again, it's, it's not a matter of feeling guilty. It's just a matter of acknowledging reality and then approaching things with the idea that this might be a good part of my life, but I'm going to do it because it's something I feel is important. I really like that perspective. And I, I think it's really important as we go into another election cycle and there is such division along those lines. And the idea of reconciliation seems really far away. And I really appreciate you bringing that into the conversation here. Look, Jerry, we're just about out of time here, but uh, what advice would you give to people moving forward to kind of get a grasp on the the work that we have to do collectively to start to regenerate the systems that we operate in rather than just being complicit, like you mentioned, in the ones that benefit us in the short term? What, what words would you leave us with? Well, I, I think the first thing is self-education, whether it's, you know, learning how to meditate or learning how the water system works. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff we've just taken for granted for so long that really don't know how it works and nobody ever taught us. Um, then, then the second thing is find like-minded people because, you know, you can't do all this stuff by yourself. And some of you uh, may have talents that um, are in the arts, whether you're a writer or a poet or a, a playwright or, or what have you, um, we need those people as well to dramatize what's going on and how we can deal with it. It's funny to me because one of the classic late 19th century plays was by Ibsen, I think Danish, and it was called An Enemy of the People. And it was about somebody who was 
effectively in a spa, in a resort spa, and discovered the water was polluted. And by bringing this to people's attention, he threatened their livelihoods through tourism and so forth. And he became ostracized. And, and so that's the essence of the play. And we see that playing out again and again. People don't want to change. So I think studying or be able to present that information in a contemporary context is we have novelists now, climate change novelists. We have people that are, you know, have all of these skills. And so I think we need to make a place for everybody. Some people are going to be just our really smart engineers and scientists, and they're going to come up with ideas. And then we're going to have to vet them through the political system. We're going to have to see who wins and who loses and how we pay off the losers for the benefit of everybody, and et cetera, et cetera. And this is all practical work. But I think you have to come at it with a spirit of, of uh, inclusion and kind of the opposite of the cancel culture that's rampant right now. You have to allow people to disagree with you, but keep the dialogue open. So to me, make a place for everybody, do your own work. And also I tell people in the book, I have an epilogue uh, for climate crisis activists for young people, spend time in nature. Don't forget you're doing this, not just for yourself, but for other species and for the health of the planet and for future generations. So you should spend some time in nature regenerating yourself. The Japanese have a whole practice they call forest bathing. And you know, when I lived in Germany, when I was a student, I noticed that every town has their own woods around it, which they managed to preserve. And most people will spend some time, if not every Sunday, out walking in the woods. And that creates a link between nature and city that keeps the political um, balance in favor of protecting nature. And so I think it's, it's a large part of these changes, Oliver, are cultural. And I think you have to, with cultural change, we have to make it faster, we have to make change faster, then we're gonna change cultures. Because normally you change cultures when the old people die off and the young people with new ideas do new things, right? And we can't, we don't have that luxury in this century. The climate crisis is driving us to have to change culture faster than human beings have ever done that. And that to me is the argument aspect of the community and for understanding that this takes time and it involves language and habits and preferences things that are not technical. And I think that's the hard part for technical people to get is that you've got to learn other languages. And fortunately in my um, life, I've been able to be a, a communicator for these things. And so that has made me more effective by understanding how to switch language. It doesn't mean you don't believe in things. It means that you have different ways to talk about it based on the audience. Mm -hmm. Good words to leave on. Jerry, can you tell our listeners how they can find more of your work, your books, and how they can get in contact? Well, the, the new book, the memoir, you go to jerryudelson.net. That's the website for the book. Um, the other books, if you just Google me, I promise I won't, won't be insulted. Um, just Google Jerry Udelson, you'll see the books or go on Amazon and look for them. The memoir is available uh, outside the U.S. most easily as an ebook, and I think you will. I think people will like it. So, um, but I am I'm Googleable, and so if you want to know about the books, just go on Amazon, put in my name, and you'll see the whole opus. Wonderful. All right, I'll try and put some of those links in the show notes for this episode. And Jerry, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. I hope we can catch up again in the future. Oliver, thank you so much for the invitation and for the great questions. All right. Take care. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye. All right. That wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. 
The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.